This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Fans of the Maple Leafs were excited after rookie player Austin Matthews made history by scoring four goals in his NHL debut. And to talk more about all of this, Scott Radley is with us, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there and at thespec.com. And, of course, host of the Scott Radley Show, weeknights right here on CHML. He is with us now. Hello, Scott. How are you today? I am not as good as Austin Matthews, but I'm pretty darn good. Although you probably appear more excited than he does. Why is it that great hockey players are so stoic? Oh, I don't know. When he scored his first goal, he was pretty darn yeah, excited. Yeah, that's true, and too. when he scored his second goal, <laughs> he was pretty darn excited. And by the time he got the fourth, I think he, his arms were just he was numb. raising them. Yeah, so, uh, you know, he, he, there were a couple funny things about this. Um, first of all, I was doing the show last night when he scored his first goal, like eight minutes in or whatever. Mm. And I was like, yeah, you know what? For the first time, it looks like in I don't know how long, Maple Leaf fans legitimately, by the looks of it, have reason to hope. And then he scores a second one, and then he scores a third. It was getting ridiculous. It was. But the funny part is, I've also got Twitter up on my computer screen in the studio there. Mm -hmm. At some point, Leaf fans are going to have to learn how to spell this guy's name right. <laughs> it's Austin, O-N, A-S-T-O-N. Every tweet is A-U-S-T-I. Yeah. It's like, come on, if he's going to be the next superstar and the guy that you're going to buy the shirt and everything else, at least learn how to spell his name right. They'll, everybody will know that by the end of the week, though. I did, this, I did the same thing initially when I wrote my blog, and I thought, no, that's not right. And then I had to go back and change it for that very reason. And I also had to go in and change it several times because I was trying to write it last night, and I thought it would be fun to do it after his first goal. <laughs> then I rewrote it for the hat trick. So I rewrote the damn blog three times, Scott. Hey, that's, uh, that's you know, welcome to the world of a sports writer who's working on deadlines. Yes. Scott, we do this nonstop. Screw that. Uh, yes, screw that. Thing. I'm staying where I am. I should have never even ventured down that road. I should have left that to you and Zamprin. Yeah, the other the other great thing that I would love to see, I don't think the Toronto Maple Leafs have either the sense of humor uh, or the sense of occasion, quite honestly, to do this. But on Friday, tomorrow, because it's the 100th anniversary of the Maple Leafs, they are unveiling their 100 greatest players of all time. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be hysterical if number 100 was Austin Matthews? <laughs> Just for fun. I mean, how good is the hundredth greatest? Why not? Is going to be some guy that who else has done it? Who else has look at the record? Some guy who was a nobody in the middle of the nineteen eighties when the team stunk, and you know, a guy like you know, four people in the crowd are going to go, "Oh yeah, I remember Bucko Glitchstein." But how Um, would you how would you feel if you were Bucko Glitchstein and you were the one hundredth guy and you got bumped? Well, okay, (laughs) you know what? Pick pick a guy. Pick a guy who has already died. And isn't going to show up and just bump everyone bump up. Bump everyone up. And you can make him. One, I think. I think it would be one of the funniest, one of the most hysterical things ever to say a number one hundred. Why not? Austin Matthews. It would be great. Uh, why not? I mean, you know, uh, again, it's not like it was insignificant. He broke a record. Hey, again, if you were going to have, for example, CHML's one hundred greatest commentators, you know, by the time why not you make you what what is you and I fighting for the hundredth spot? Is that no, what you're telling you'd up, us? You'd be up much higher, but by the time you get down to the one hundred range, really, who cares? What difference does it make once you get down there? You're not exactly talking about the cream of the crop once you get down to number one hundred. I'd feel safer if we were talking about columnists on this at the spec as opposed to people at CHML. 
Either way, I'm not making the list, so it doesn't really matter. If you can squeeze me in at number 100, I'll take it. All right. So um, talk about how big this is. What does this mean? Is this a new era for the Leafs? You've talked about on this show many times how the Leafs should have done exactly what Babcock and everybody did this time, was take her down and start fresh with a new draft pick. You've been saying that for years on this show. Is this the beginning of a new era? Maybe. And look, come on! No, yesterday was was for Leaf fans. Yesterday was Nirvana. Yesterday <laughs> was. was dropping into Shangri La yeah. for yeah, a day. Really? This is where so. This is are. what it's other, like. Other than the result, of course, because yeah. they still lost, as you mentioned. Yeah, that's but, true. But it, for I don't know the first time in really the first time since probably the Doug Gilmore era, in which is very interesting because I talked about this last night. The last time. Leaf fans probably felt like there was something really big to hope for, would have been at the start of a year, was probably the start of the 1993 season. That was the year Doug Gilmore had come the previous winter, and yeah. they had Gilmore and Andrew Chuck and these guys. And if you recall, they started that year 10-0. and But nobody noticed the Maple Leafs starting 10-0. and Do you remember why? No. 1993 October oh, Blue, Blue Jays. Jays were on the Blue Jays. We yeah. have some we have some real interesting similarities here going on. Isn't that Blue funny? Jays are in the playoffs, hmm. and once again, for the first time, you've got a Leaf team that I don't look. I don't think the Leafs are. Nobody's talking about a Stanley Cup. No, probably nobody's talking really about playoffs yet because as exciting as the guys they have are, their defense yesterday. I mean, it looked really exciting in the offensive end. It looked really exciting in the defensive end, too, because every time Ottawa went down there, they scored. So you don't have the pieces yet, and they don't have the experience yet. But, Scott, for the first time in a long time, I think you could at least watch Maple Leafs hockey, if, if yesterday was any indication, yeah. and say, I don't know if they're going to win or lose, but at least it's going to be exciting, perhaps. At yeah. least we're going to see some stuff. It's not just going to be a 2-1 game grinding it out with no offensive creativity and we're just hoping that maybe the other team makes a mistake. That That's that's not the way a lot of coaches want to play these days. But Mike Babcock still has seven years left on his big contract. He's not being fired. He's fully free to say, you know what, guys? We're going to work on some systems. We're going to work on some structure. But you guys are creative guys. Knock yourself out. Go yeah. for it in the offensive end. And that would be great to watch. That would mm. be great to watch even if they lose that would be great to watch uh what's his biggest challenge moving forward i mean you know he can't do this every game obviously nope. and, and it would be nice some uh, some other team members to step up perhaps uh what's his biggest challenge moving forward and does anybody care that the leafs lost this game by the way no nobody well i, I maybe mike babcock does yeah. um, even though but even that even he after the game Talk about a coach who just who lost the game. I've never heard a coach who lost the game be as ebullient about, uh, you know, he's like, this is the greatest game ever. Yeah. And this is Mike Babcock. Like, Mike Babcock never gets excited about anything. Yeah. Mike Babcock could literally walk into a room and discover, I don't know, the, uh, the, the greatest treasure in the world's history, and it's his, and he'd come out and he'd say, yeah, it was a good effort. Yeah. I mean, he, like, he's, an, he's a flat guy, yeah. and he was thrilled about this. Um, what's coming out later is, well, first of all, the next game, the next team, I can't even remember who they play next, who the Leafs play next. You're going to see, I would expect, a lot more attention paid to Austin Matthews. Yeah. I, I think in this one, because he started 
as the third-line center, whatever that means, that he didn't necessarily face the other team's top checking lines, especially early in the game. Mm-hmm. I think you would be fairly safe to guess that he is going to start seeing right away the other team's best defending yeah. groups. And what that means is then you got to have guys like Nazem Kadri and the other guys, the other centers and the other lines step up. If they're going to try and take Austin Matthews out of the game, which they will, you're right. The other guys then have to start scoring some yeah. goals. This can't be a, a one-man He's got to watch. He doesn't get hurt, man. Well, that would would that not be the leafiest thing of all time? <laughs> Don't even I mean, go there. Don't would. even go he there. Four goals, and looks like he's the second coming of Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux yeah. and Maurice Richard all wrapped into one. And in game two, he blows out his knee and yeah. is done for the year and is crippled for the rest of his life. I mean, it, it just would be so Toronto Maple Leafs for that to happen. I, but uh, all right, you no, not... to it. you get the sense things may be turning a corner. Maybe luck is turning. A little bit for Maple Leaf fans. All right, let's move on to, of course, uh, tomorrow, uh, American League Championship with uh, Cleveland and Toronto. Uh, your thoughts on the Cleveland logo, all of that discussion. I had, um, last night on the show, you can hear it, at uh, if I could put in a picture, you can Go for you it. find it at the uh, Scott Radley Show page at 900CHML.com. You can find it at the Scott Radley Show Facebook page. I had a Cleveland baseball historian on the show last night. Because this has been a really interesting topic for the last few days, the mm-hmm. whole story of the Indian's name and the logo. And so I thought, you know what, where did it even come from? Like, how did you end up with a name like the Indians on a baseball team? And basically, he said there are three theories. Nobody knows exactly why it's named this. There are three theories. One of them is that there was, uh, back, when, see, back in the day, team names, weren't like they are now. They weren't brands. Mm-hmm. Like now, if you were going to change the Blue Jays name, you'd have marketing companies and polling companies and designers. Yeah. And that wasn't what it was. They were the Cleveland Spiders. And then they became the Cleveland Nap um, because, uh, because they had a player named uh, Nap Lazulay. And so they actually called the name after that guy. Hmm. And then they, became, they were other things as well. Well, the, they decided they wanted to change it because Nap Lazulay had left the team. And so it was the owner and some newspaper guys, one theory is, sitting in a room, and they came up with the name Indians out of the clear blue sky. Another one is that the Boston Braves had done so well, and they mm. said, Braves? Okay, Indians. You know, maybe that'll bring us some good luck. And mm-hmm. the third one, which is commonly cited, they had a Native American player named Louis Sokalexis, who came in, and he was, a, he was a meteor for the first while he arrived. He was just a terrific player. And then the story goes that he ran into alcohol problems, and very quickly he was out of baseball, and Indians was named after him, Hmm. which was an honor as opposed to a sarcastic or demeaning thing. So here's the, I mean, the long answer to your question is, those are the potential or the possible histories of why it's called that. What does it mean for now? Well, two things. What year was that, by the way? Do you that know? would have been 1915. 1915, wow. So we're talking a century ago. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's two issues at play here. The first one is, I, I noticed that the Ontario Human Rights Commissioner and Commission is involved in this thing. Um, that, that drives me nuts. I mean, it really does. I, any, I don't think this is a, a situation for government intervention, for government to stick their nose in and insist on political correctness. All right? So I, 
as soon as the government says you have to do it, I think a lot of people's backs get up yeah. and they defend it. Now, the flip side of this is, is it a name that should still be around today? See, here's what I think. The name, when it was first given to the team, wasn't, I don't believe, didn't carry the same racist connotation, but certainly sensibilities and times and tastes and everything else change over time. And I don't believe that the people who named that team were racist because they called it that. We are in a different time and a different era. Yeah. And I think that there is a way that you can say very gently, you know what? Um, yeah, we, we, we do find ourselves in a different time now, and there are a lot of people uncomfortable with this. So here's what we're going to do. We don't want to abandon the history of Cleveland, and we've had this name for a while. But what we're going to do, we are going to change the name to our actual historic name, and we're going to go back and we're going to be the Cleveland Spiders. So we're mm. not abandoning history, we're embracing history. Mm. It's a good way to look at it. And we can go back, we can, you know, and, and do it that way. And I think if you, if you couch it in a way that says, listen, we're not acknowledging that everybody who's been involved in this team and the name and everything else are a bunch of racists. That's not the case. But times do change, and maybe we have to change along with it. Um, that, to me, is the easy way. But as long as you have governments and a form, a formal bodies who are screaming and yelling, you find that people get their back up and they dig their heels in. The more you say you have to do something, the more some people are going to say, no, I don't want to do it. Yeah. If, there, if this is simply a, oh, I hate this word, I, I mean, it's just, um, but if this is a, um, an organic, I just I hate using that word, but if this was a change that way, I think it actually could fly. I think there might be some pushback for a little while. But I think eventually, if you did it, if you don't, the, the mistake they would make and where they would get real pushback is if they come up with, they go to some marketing company and they come up with some ludicrous name, you know, yeah. or the Cleveland Care Bears yeah. or something, because we know we can market the Care Bear logo or something. Like, if you yeah. come up, the Toronto Raptors are a classic example. Let's come up with the stupidest name, but we know that we can sell, purple is big and the rap and the Jurassic Park franchise yeah. is huge. Yeah. If you go back to history, I think people would buy that. I think people would be okay with that. Yeah, good point. All right, who's on the show tonight? Anything you want to plug? Uh, well, two things. Uh, first of all, we have a psychologist who has been studying clowns. You've heard about these crazy, yeah. insane clowns? Yeah. A psychologist who's been studying the history <laughs> and the reaction, human reaction to clowns is on to explain this whole thing, because uh, frankly, I don't understand it. <laughs> And also tonight, uh, last few weeks, number of calls has been through the roof. We are doing our TV Name That Tunes. You can win a gift certificate to go eat at Hutch's on the beach. Oh. So many calls for the 8.30 hour. We do TV show theme song Name That Tune. So get your fingers ready to dial and get in early if you want to be on. It all happens on the Scott Radley Show tonight on CHML. And, of course, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott, as always. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Pete Karagiorgis is with us. He is the Director of Consumer and Industry Relations, Insurance Bureau of Canada. A reason for this visit, a change in rules for auto insurance took effect uh, the day uh, after, or sorry, the day an Ontario man suffered injuries in a crash that left his family near bankruptcy. What has happened? What has changed with our auto insurance? Let's find out more all about that. And Peter is with us now. Hello, Pete. How are you today? Good afternoon, Scott. Doing well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, I believe we may have talked about this a few months back on how this was all going to affect people and what was going to happen. Uh, How has our auto insurance changed? Well, as of June 1st, um, anyone insuring their cars or renewing a policy after that date 
um, has some choices to make, and, and there are differences in terms of coverage limits, um, some added, some subtracted, and some um, that uh, require an individual to really sit down with their insurance representative and make the choices that are best for them and, and their families. So uh, there are some uh, some changes there. Um, and as well, uh, the government uh, back in 2012 had a report uh, or superintendent's report that came out related to catastrophic injuries and, and how they're defined. And that also came into force on June 1st. So there was uh, a few changes that uh, have impacted us in Ontario. So why, what's the reason for this? What, uh, is it, is it, how is it structured differently now? Well, some of the key changes, and and everyone who uh, has auto insurance would have received um, the information from their insurance company. Some of the the changes with regards to benefit levels, um, you know, there is uh, medical and rehabilitation benefits and attendant care benefits that have been grouped together for minor injuries. Um, And and so there are uh, limits there, but there's options for people to purchase increased limits, as well, there's a combination for people who may have been catastrophically injured. A um, million dollar uh, rehab is uh, still in existence, and actually that was combined with attendant care. Uh, but individuals, again, can buy up more coverage there. The key thing, though, from, from a perspective that, that not a lot of people, I think, are, are aware of, and it's important to note, is that you can choose to purchase a coverage that uh, provides you with a million dollars worth of medical rehabilitation and attendant care coverage for all injuries, whether it is a minor injury or catastrophic injury. So if you think that, well, I need more uh, coverage than, than what's available, um, that allows for an additional stacking of benefits. And so someone potentially could receive up to $3 million in first-party injuries that they claim through their insurance companies as opposed to having to go through court and, and to uh, to create a, a legal case uh, in front of a judge or go through that avenue. And so what were the what's the reasoning for these changes? Why did this have to happen? Well, the government's the one who uh, made these changes. I, th- I think uh, part of these changes... Uh, Is this trying to reduce rates? Well, I, I don't know. If it, it was part of, an, and it arose when the government made its promise promised to reduce uh, auto insurance uh, premiums by 15%, and currently they're at 10%. Um, you know, so that was part of the, 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 I guess, driving force behind it. Some of the other changes, such as the uh, the definition of what a catastrophic injury is, um, that was because of the fact that when this definition was first introduced in the mid-1990s, it hadn't been reviewed. And so 20 years later, we have more, more current and up-to-date medical information and practices uh, that the government figures we should be using to assess individuals and help treat individuals. So that was part of the changes. So some of it is is to update some practices, and other is is, is to look at um, you know some changes that that hopefully uh, will uh, ultimately allow people to be in the driver's seat to determine what coverages they need um, and and uh, potentially even save people some money. Uh, so in the attempt to reduce rates, have they reduced coverage simply? Um, there are some areas where coverage has been reduced, but other areas where coverage options have been increased. So on but those balance, options you have to pay for, correct? Well, exactly. In some of these areas, you do have to pay for some of the additional top-ups. Um, so overall, though, um, it allows for more choice. 
uh, in the past, um, you know, typically you were given um, a standard product, and, and here you go, like it or lump it. You know, and that last number but at of the, years... But at the end of the day, let me ask you this, Pete. At the end of the day, uh, what's insurance for? It's to cover all of these sort of injuries. So, you know, by giving well, is, is, is giving people the option to cheap out on it, is that a good idea? You know, you know Scott, at the end of the day, it's to help people recover from crashes that they've been in and whether that is to fix their cars just like you've got options in terms of whether you want to have collision coverage or or, mm-hmm. or not on your vehicle the same thing applies for injuries um as as uh, a group we have uh, seen that the primary care that's given to individuals injured is is through our hospital system and many people may not be aware but the insurance industry annually provides uh, in excess of 150 million dollars to the government uh, for emergency room visits, uh, never mind the rehab that ha- happens afterwards, but that's just for primary emergency room visits. So, um, you know, there there are steps that that the industry takes uh, to support um, some of the institutions we have that that help people recover from these injuries. So, it's a question I think in terms of having people make some choices because we've also heard, and I'm sure government's heard that. I may not need this coverage, or I may have some coverage through work, or I may not have coverage through work, or I may need more coverage. Right. So it's it's difficult to provide a one-size-fits-all answer. So at the end, you believe this is better for the consumer? Uh, well, I think I think it is. I think it is because it, it forces people to take a more active role and, and more of an interest in their uh, um, their insurance to ensure that they can match their needs. Uh, with their policies. And so, as I said before, it sort of puts people in the driver's seat and uh, it, it does force people to take more of a role. But there are options out there. If you have a broker or an agent or insurance company directly that you deal with, have those conversations with them. Don't just blindly play, pay your bills and assume nothing's changed. Make an active role. There may be situations in your personal situation, your personal life that have changed. You may be driving more. You may be driving less. You may have more drivers in the household, changed vehicles. We recognize those changes. And, and so we should also look at when those things happen, have we contacted our insurance company to make adjustments at the other end of the policy too? So um, we need to be active consumers, and I think part of this is, is, is forcing people to do that, whether they want to or not. I think um, it's important that that conversation occurs. Um, so how would this affect the average person? For example, um, if you're an average person with average insurance prior to this decision, um, how much is it going to cost you extra, extra to have what you already had? Uh, the, the, the extra changes is it really depends on the company and individual situ- situation. There is unfortunately no real average. Um, it, it varies by company. It's a competitive market out there. Some companies provide better uh, better rates than others, depending on an individual si- situation, um, coverage levels, uh, quality of service. There's there's a whole host of factors that people consider. So to provide a cookie cutter answer and say this is what the average is, there really isn't an average. It, it uh, is on a case-by-case basis, and, and that's the important thing here that we got to recognize is my insurance needs are likely different than yours are, Scott. I mean, you know, I've got a young driver in the household, so that's that's a different factor also that I need to consider. Someone may be driving less or may be driving more or, or may have a new job or may have lost a job or something. So you need to adjust and, and, and 
determine what your situation is. So to say average, I don't think it's fair um, to most people to, to sort of label it because we can't put labels like that on it. Uh, did this come about because of the government's initiative to reduce rates, or was this about customizing policies to people's needs? Um, probably was a little bit of both. There's an opportunity there uh, to uh, ensure that people can customize policies and, and understand what their coverages are, um, and, and hopefully also adjust premiums um, accordingly. Some people uh, will recognize that they may have to spend more. Um, some people may save some money. So at the end of the day, like I said, there is no average. It really varies by situation. And the government likely took the initiative initially because, um, you know, it, it was a political um, uh, issue that was uh, a statement that was made in the, uh, yeah. the legislature by the government. And so as an industry, we're responding and trying to work uh, with consumers and with government and with insurance companies to uh, uh, to balance things out. In the end, will will any sort of discounts that were uh, that we were striving for will they be eroded by uh, loss of coverage? And by that I mean, would and I know we we can't average, but you know either either most are paying more or they're not. Uh, at the end of the day, to get the coverage that we had, is it going to cost us more? Um, it, it may cost uh, an individual more. It may cost an individual less. Um, you know, again, as I said, like. You know, labeling something as average is inappropriate. Making that type of statement, not knowing an individual situation or circumstances, is is not really an accurate comment to make. I, I know that for for me, um, I've my insurance is renewing in in November, and I've got a note from my insurance uh, representative that my premiums are coming down. However, being aware that there's changes that I can now access in the policy, I likely will be putting that money back in to get myself some additional coverage. Uh, and, and so it could be a wash. It could be a wash for me or it could be a few dollars one way or another. Um, but I think the best situation that results here, just like most consumers, is hopefully you have a better understanding of what you're covered for, what you need, um, what you may not need, and it provides people with, um, with, with more control. So, uh, and these changes will arrive with your next bill. Is that correct? Well, if your policy renewed June 1st or after, that's when these changes take effect in terms of um, some of the coverage options and changes. So, uh, for example, my situation has been status quo from June 1st until my policy renews in November. Other people who may have purchased a new policy or had a renewal prior to then, or maybe even later, someone who may, whose policy may be changing or renewing in March or April of next year, um, won't have to make that decision until their renewal paperwork comes in the mail. Now, some of the other changes, though, in terms of things like the um, the definition of what a catastrophic injury is, that was effective June 1st regardless. So if you were in a crash uh, after June 1st, um, this definition would apply versus those people who would have been involved in a crash before June 1st. Uh, so um, if your policy is arriving, will it be the same sort of coverage that you always had with an increase in price or a decrease, or will they will they balance it around your previous price? Would your coverage not say the, the, stay the same unless you had uh, requested it changed? Well, and again, it depends on what options you had. In some cases, uh, prior to this change, June 1st, there were still some options that individuals could make. For example, 
example, income replacement benefits. Um, you know, someone may have purchased greater than the standard income replacement benefit, which was about $400 a week. Uh, and, and now those people are going to have to sit down and, and look at their options in terms of do they want $600 a week, $800 a week, or $1,000 right. a week. So they're going to have to revisit some of those options. So I'm not certain. depends on, um, you know, everyone's case and, and what optional benefits you may have selected prior. Typically it will come in with the same coverage level. So if you had collision coverage, comprehensive coverage, and, and your accident benefits coverages, they will be there um, as they were. Uh, and, and hopefully, again, this is, is a I guess the point that I'm, I guess the point that I'm making, Pete, is as you transition from one to the other, will your coverage be the same and your, and your uh, fee just be adjusted up or down either way? I, yeah, I think so. And, and and again, you know, the reason I'm saying I think so is is uh, every company's different. Every company's different. Yeah, and, yeah. and like a lot of people, you know, I got my renewal in the mail just a couple of weeks ago, and it's sitting on the counter waiting for. I know, I know. Un- unfortunately, Pete, we don't all have the attention for it that you do, and that's what I'm thinking about. Well, uh, you know, and, and and here it is. I'm I'm no different than most people. You know, life gets busy, and and I know that I've got uh, another six weeks until that comes up for renewal. But I should make these changes now. Uh, especially, you know, when you get that paperwork, and I know it's uh, it's a challenge at times. We all have busy lives, but when you get that paperwork, sit down and, and call your your uh, insurance representative and, and review it with them. I, I made a quick phone call on another issue on another coverage related to my auto insurance, and so that renews the same time. It, it's you know, it's not even simple for individuals who, as I'd say, you know, are insurance geeks. Uh, it's, it takes a bit of effort and time, and, and I can appreciate how uh, how most people and most consumers um, sort of try and put it off because they don't uh, they don't have the time to devote to it. But we have to, and especially when uh, uh, when it's a policy that protects us from so many things that could go wrong and could go bad and help us recover from those events. Uh, it's important that we do. So you were talked about how the the definition of a catastrophic injury has changed. How has that changed? Well, it, it brings in some of um, um, definitions in terms of um, uh, traumatic brain injuries um, that have been updated in the medical community, and it talks about uh, um, you know uh, some of the periods that that exist um, as well. Young people under the age of eighteen uh, may have an easier time qualifying for. Um, uh, catastrophic injury. One of the things that hasn't changed about it, though, is someone who's been seriously injured in a crash. Um, the recovery process takes time, and and you know in some cases it, it's a year to two years and and longer. So the determination of whether or not uh, an injury is catastrophic, while some of them can be simple. Some people who may have lost a limb, uh, their sight uh, may have, uh, you know, become unfortunately para- paralyzed as a result of that crash. That's a simple and, and determination that can be made easy at the at the front end. Sometimes it takes a little longer to see how much recovery can occur, what can be expected to be a permanent condition, and so thus people do have typically up to two years from that date of the crash to make a, a case that their injury is catastrophic with the support of their doctors. So uh, that exists right now. It, it continues to exist, and, and so that's something that people need to be aware of, too, is that um, no one's pushing 
someone to quickly make a determination. And, and many many folks in the medical community recognize that uh, we recover from injuries uh, at different uh, paces, at different speeds, and mm. so that that's why the care even is tailored to us individually. A uh, recent story appeared in the news. Uh, I'm reading this out of CBC News. Auto insurance rate rule change took effect the day an Ontario man uh, suffered severe injuries in a crash that left his family on the verge of bankruptcy as he goes through an expensive and drawn-out rehabilitation process. If the crash had occurred just 12 hours earlier, he'd been eligible for up to $2 million in compensation, according to the personal injury lawyer representing the family, and instead he receives 86000 How does that happen? Well, you know, I don't want to comment on specifics because I don't know the specific details right. here. I, 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 but generally speaking, again, um, the determination of whether an individual, as I just said, is catastrophically injured um, can occur up to two years after. So there is a window here that's still open yeah. for anyone. Uh, and, you know, in this case, is no different uh, for anyone to claim that they are catastrophically injured and to, to be able to access uh, the, the benefits that you know, are, are there for those people who do suffer catastrophic injuries. The other key thing that, that we need to recognize, and uh, lawyers will remind you all the time, we see their, their posters and, and, and banners everywhere, is that an individual who is innocent uh, and is not at fault for that uh, does have the right to sue. And so there still is that avenue uh, available to uh, individuals to um, to access the courts and to uh, make a claim or a case or a suit against the at-fault driver. And so I suspect in a case like this, that would likely occur because, um, you know, there's, there's uh, benefits uh, available to that person on the other driver's policy in terms of the liability. Hmm. Pete Cara Georges has been with us, con- uh, Director, Consumer and Industry Relations, Insurance Bureau of Canada. Pete, thanks very much for trying to decode this for us. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thank, Thank you. you. It is 1254. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Phone lines always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Brian hmm. is on the line. Brian, what's your story? Hi, Scott. Um, uh, I can't help but think that this 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 guest you just had on is kind of tap dancing and choosing his words very carefully. Well, I'm sure he is. He's from the Insurance Bureau of Canada. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, anytime the government's involved, large businesses, insurance companies are involved, ultimately, Canadians, we're the ones that get screwed. We are a complacent bunch. If you tell us your insurance policies have changed, what do we do? We all throw it away. What's, what, what am I paying? What do I pay? Yeah. That's all we're worried about. Yeah. That, that poor guy in that motorcycle accident... Oh, man, what he's going through and that whole family's going through is absolutely terrible. And and this is all because the government promised us to have cheaper auto insurance? Yeah, it seems kind of odd, doesn't it, Brian? That you know, and that was my point with uh with Peter was that, you know, this all started with a political battle between the NDP and the Liberals over reducing insurance rates. And, and you know, here, like, you know, geez, I, I don't remember demanding my insurance rate to be any lower. I mean, no one likes paying for it. But, gee no, whiz, but when you get in a situation before. like this person, you're screwed. Yeah, but like before, we all had coverage. And we all knew you got a million liability, you got a million this, a million that. And, and, and you had the, 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 the benefits if you, you, you couldn't work, you were covered. Everything was pretty basic standard. Yeah. So what they've done now is make it so convoluted, so difficult, so... It, 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 they're taking advantage of, of the fact that nobody's really going to look into this. As he said, insurance geeks, yeah, sure, people who've got, the, you know, if they're in the business or they've got the time to do it, but by and large, the average people, we're going to get 
we're basically getting less for more money. And if you want the same coverage you have, he didn't want to say it, but your prices have to go up. Yeah, yeah. So ultimately, it's, it's, it's a win-win for them. They get to tap dance around and say, yeah, you got cheaper insurance, but ultimately, if you want the same coverage you had last year, it's going to cost you more. It does so, seem very odd that this all started with a you know political movement to reduce insurance rates. It does. Like, I, I listened to your questions. You were asking the questions very, very well, but he was, he's, he's yeah. good at his job, I'll tell you that. All right, Brian, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. You. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've talked to this, uh, this man several times over the phone. He is in person with us now. Uh, Gary Grant is with us, spokesperson for the National Co- uh, Coalition Against Contraband Tobacco, uh, in town to meet with businesses and decision makers and discuss the challenges of illegal cigarettes in Ontario. One in three cigarettes are illegal, and Gary is with us now. Gary, thanks for coming in. Good to finally meet you. Yeah, nice to see you. I nice think we've talked here. for years over the phone That's on That's right. Nice to be here. So talk about what you're doing. What's the objective? What, what's the purpose of your visits as you go across uh, the contraband trail? Well, as we've been doing for a few years now, we uh, you know make periodic visits a couple of times a year to the various centers in, in the province, and mostly the centers that are sort of... Uh, Heavily, uh, heavily marketed by the contraband people. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, you have a lot of contraband in this area, uh, in southwest Ontario here, mm-hmm. or near near the Brantford area and whatnot. And what we do is try and raise awareness with the public. We try and raise awareness with some of the politicians who may not be aware of the scope of the problem. Uh, we try and talk to media as much as we can so that the public can learn uh, the damage that the contraband tobacco trade is doing in a community. Uh, organized crime is involved. Uh, huge dollars are being lost by the provincial treasury by allowing this contraband trade to continue. And, uh, you know, statistics are holding pretty firm that about one in three cigarettes purchased in Ontario are contraband, hmm. and that's a lot. And uh, so, you know, we've got some, we've, we've gone up to Parliament Hill last week. We have some ideas for the government of how's, how they can help curb the contraband trade, which is good for everybody. And we have some concerns about a new bill that's coming in, uh, introducing plain packaging requirements. Uh, we'll get to that in a sec. What is the contraband trail exactly? Well, uh, a contraband trail is just something uh, I coined, uh, the, the sort of the the route of the 401 QEW uh, from Cornwall to, to Windsor, basically the most populated area of the province and and the route that most of the contraband has to come along at one point. Mm-hmm. And the towns and cities and uh, places along that way are, you know, targeted pretty heavy by the criminals. And especially if you're close to a manufacturing area, as you are here in, in Hamilton, uh, the RCMP has estimated that, you know, the trade is an easy route uh, to bring uh, contraband goods, not just tobacco, but they're they're also bringing along guns, they're bringing along drugs, and even some instances of human smuggling. So it's a pretty uh, bad thing when it comes to your community, and of course Hamilton is one of those communities. We're trying to raise the raise the alarm bells and try and get people to wake up and do something about it. Where does the contraband cigarettes come from? Most of the contraband cigarettes are manufactured in factories on First Nations, either at the uh, Cornwall area or out here in the Six Nations. Uh, the uh, RCMP has estimated that there's about 50 illegal, totally illegal factories that are churning out these cigarettes. They're not licensed by anybody. They're not paying any taxes. Churning them out at up to 10,000 uh, cigarettes a minute. 
uh, smuggling them across to uh, biker gangs, other types of organized crime gangs, and then they peddle those cigarettes along with their other wares around Ontario, including kids. They don't care how old you are. They don't respect the province's uh, laws as to uh, trying to curb youth smoking. They'll sell a kid a baggie of cigarettes, of 200 cigarettes, for about the cost of a movie ticket. Hmm. So, you know, what we're really trying to do is get the government to take action and make more people aware of what's going on. Most people don't smoke. Maybe they don't know the scope of the problem or the impact of the problem or that organized crime is involved. And if they are aware of that, maybe they'll squawk to the politicians to get something done about it. So the majority of this product is produced on reserves. Reserves will say it's their right to produce this product. Yes, it is. Uh, they'll say it's their right to uh, produce the product and sell the product, but the but the uh, the province of Ontario and the federal government disagree that it's their right to then uh, have that product exported into the provinces and sold at massive profits through they an say, organized crime network. They, they would say that that's not it's got nothing to do with them. They might say that, but uh, we disagree strongly, as does uh, all levels of government. Uh it is. It has been reported, and I think the Canadian Taxpayers Federation said something about this a few weeks ago. Maybe this was the last time we had spoke with you, uh, that they are selling way more than they could ever smoke on a reserve. Does that stat ring with anybody? Does that hold true with any politician? Like, Well, it, it puzzles me because last year the provincial government said they were going to take make a priority as tackling the black market, including contraband cigarettes. Uh, and they introduced a nine-person task force of OPP officers to deal with it. But then they take an, another step backwards by raising the taxes on cigarettes. And, you know, I'm not going to comment on what taxes should be, but if you're trying to curb illegal, an illegal market, uh, it drives more people to the illegal market when you raise the prices of the legal product. So, you know, and now they're talking about this allocation, increasing the allocation numbers that can be manufactured on First Nations Reserve that are legally manufactured on First Nations to be sold and consumed on First Nations. And many thousands more are being allotted that they're able to make uh, than any uh, man, woman, or child could smoke in a year. And, you know, obviously, where is that excess going to go? It's going to go to the black market. How would they explain that, though? Like, how do they justify that? Uh, I haven't seen an explanation or a justification. Uh, is it because of the tenuous relationships between governments and First Nations? Is that's not really the root of this whole problem? Well, you know, that's up for the government to answer. Uh, you know, it certainly seems there's a reluctance to tackle the problem head on uh, with the First Nations people. And we say that there's never going to be a, a, a total solution to this and a final solution until the federal government, the provincial government, all the departments within those that deal with this type of an issue and First Nations get together to see if they can hammer out some type of a settlement. As long as the governments uh, don't tackle it head on, it's going to continue to fester. Where is the roadblock, Gary? Because, again, you know, you come armed with stats, you come armed with uh, the same stuff every year, and no one's surprised at any of this. And yet, it's, and it seems that when you talk to politicians and so on and so forth, I'm sure they're very respectful and, and say that this is an issue that we, we should address. But where does it stop? Where does it, at what point does, nah. We're not going to do this because obviously there's somebody, you know, at some point saying, yeah, this isn't worth pursuing. This will only turn into something that we don't want it to. Well, we've certainly made the recommendations and we do year after year. We ask, I ask uh, the, the folks at the provincial government to take one quick look across the imaginary border to Quebec 
where they uh, took uh, strong action against contraband tobacco by increasing enforcement and having a fund from uh, from fines that were paid for contraband trafficking to fund further invest, uh, investigations and enforcement. And they've reduced their contraband rate by 50% in the last few years. They used to be as bad as Ontario, and now they're not. So, you know, you're quite, you're, I can't answer that question either. We come armed with statistics, the same statistics, 175 organized criminal gangs, 50 illegal factories, uh, targeting young people, selling guns, selling weapons, selling drugs, uh, targeting young people, selling them to kids. And, uh, you know, the answer basically is in smaller little things that go on. And uh, if I could get into their minds, I'd give you their answer, but Mm. I can't. Uh, So what is the difference between the attitude in Quebec and and Ontario? And let me ask this further question. If they pretty much shut things down in Quebec, is that putting more stress on Ontario producers? Well, I guess, you know, the, it certainly puts more stress, uh, more of the market will try and go to Ontario and more of the market will try and go to the, the Maritimes. And there has been some of the companies that were manufacturing cigarettes in Quebec have announced their intentions to set up shop in Alberta. So I guess, you know, because mm-hmm. Quebec won't allow any more <clears throat> cigarette factories to be built, uh, they're trying to move west. So far, Alberta has resisted that. But it's just been a mindset of the Quebec provincial government, I get, to get to, to allow all police officers in the province to get involved in the fight. Obviously, they've uh, accepted the dangers of organized crime in your community more than Ontario has, and they've taken uh, firm and effective action. And in regard to profits that they confiscate, elaborate on that. Uh, they developed, a, a, I guess, a department in the, uh, in the provincial government called Access to Back, in which fines that are paid from people that have been convicted of trafficking in, in contraband tobacco are, are go to this fund called Access to Back, and then municipalities and police services and whatnot can apply for funding from that to fund further contraband investigations. All police officers I speak to, all police services, and rightly so, I, I know for sure, they have you know, human resource issues, they, mm-hmm. have, they have budget issues and whatnot. So to be able to get a, a revenue source that they can tap into to fund the further investigations is a great resource. And to have every police officer in the province doing it instead of just Mounties and a few OPP, it's great. And, uh, the, you know, the, the, the proof is right in front of the politicians in Ontario. Best practices, let's look at it. And usually when something is uh, paying for itself or generating revenue in some way uh, for the cause, that seems to get their attention, but not this case. No, I mean, it's even had a positive effect on the uh, Quebec budget because they're yeah. not losing as much money to the contraband trade in Ontario is losing approximately a billion dollars a year federally and provincially. So as you do this tour uh, along the contraband trail, uh, who are you meeting with? What do you, who's, who's, who's got an ear for this? Well, we're meeting with uh, MPs who have time and willingness to talk to us. We're particularly meeting with several uh, new MPs that were elected in the last election that maybe need to be educated on this. We're meeting with as many media people as we can and uh, citizens groups. Uh, you know, we're pretty proactive and uh, as to who we'll meet because, we, as I said, the, our biggest goal is to raise awareness so that people will be, see the problem and demand action from their politicians. Do you think because this is uh, sort of an anti-establishment thing, 
Um, you, you know, it, it's a way not only to get the product cheaper, but you're kind of taking advantage of the tax man. And there's certainly a segment of the population that that is attracted to that. It, it, do you think that's one of the reasons why there isn't more action on this? Well, there are people. I mean, the government's never been shy about uh, chasing me down for a little uh, income tax or GST that I haven't paid. So I don't know why they would let huge numbers like uh, this 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 money just go into the hands of criminals when we have so much to, uh, you know, so, so much in Ontario that it could be used for, why they would do that. But people say to me that, you know, people's, people's attitudes are, oh, it's just a tax, just people cheating the tax man. Yeah. And I say, wait a minute, it's not the tax man's money. Yeah. That's our money. Yeah. That's all of our money to go towards legitimate government enterprises to make our lives better. And, uh, you know, those hardcore people, I think, will never change. But, you know, we don't really want to start this whole new generation of young people smoking that uh, have access to cigarettes through the criminals. And, you know, the, the end game is to stop smoking. So they should be taking steps to stop the contraband trade, as well as other steps on, uh, that, that they take. Like, for instance, they're indicating that they want to, uh, the government this is, uh, introduce plain packaging for cigarettes thinking that that somehow will will stop people from smoking. Uh, and you know what? I won't comment on whether that may be effective or not down the road, but as long as you have a huge contraband market, mm. uh, the, con- the counterfeiters will find it far easier to make packages that are plain packages. Yeah. Cust- uh, consumers will be confused. Uh, law enforcement, may be, it might be more difficult. So in a market that's already one in three contraband, it looks like it would grow the market. And mm. uh, so, you know what, if you're going to uh, introduce measures like th- such as plain packaging, uh, let's try and get a handle on the contraband problem because we, anytime there's a, there's a make it more difficult for people to, to buy their legal cigarettes, uh, they, people turn to the black market. So let's get a handle on that and then, you know, before and at least in conjunction with all the other moves. You talked about plain packaging. How does that encourage or how does that contribute to the contraband industry? Well, to me, it would contribute to the contraband industry because now, you know, a lot of the the manufacturing in the contraband industry has been uh, moving towards manufacturing cigarettes that are packaged to make it look like legal cigarettes. Mm -hmm. So they won't need to go to that trouble anymore. They'll just put plain packaging packaging with type uh, written stuff on it, just like the legal ones will be. So people won't know and, you know, uh, people will uh, be confused in what they buy. they may not know they're being handed a package of contraband. They should know by the price. It's significantly cheaper. Uh, but it makes it easier for the criminals to do their business if they could just blend into the market. Interesting note here uh, from a listener. I'm curious what the law is concerning tobacco crops. In the last few years, tobacco fields have popped up on just uh, about every road on Six Nations Reserve. I'm out here every day, so I see the explosion of the product. Well, in First Nations, that's First Nations land, and you know the the they they are allowed to, to grow tobacco to and manufacture a certain amount of cigarettes, uh, and uh, I wouldn't I would su- suggest that the government of Ontario is not inspecting that. Uh, I don't know, but it's certainly it's such a lucrative business. And there's 50 illegal factories, as I told you. So it's just, you know, they can uh, grow it, they can make cigarettes out of it, and they can churn it out and hand it across to your local Hells Angel guy, and everyone makes a bundle on it. Hmm. Except the, the local, ta- the regular taxpayer. Are you noticing any more appetite for politicians uh, willing to pursue this as you do this uh, tour? 
I see interest, and especially from politicians that are uh, that are in the in the areas that have a, a very large contraband trade in them. But uh, you know, unless they can get their message and their support, which they pledge to give, many of them, uh, to the ears of the people that are making the big decisions at the top of the chain. Uh, you know, but it's encouraging that they do. They 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 pay attention. They listen to it. Uh, they you know they don't challenge what I'm saying. Uh, they agree that it's a problem and they're going to take it back and talk about it. But so far, five years of that has uh, produced in some action, but certainly not enough. Do you think the government is more interested in education and just trying to get people off of cigarettes? And say, you know, if we do that, we don't have to deal with this hot potato issue. Well, they might, but then they're totally wrong because the people that are going to want cigarettes, if 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 it's harder and harder to get the legal and regulated, I might say it's a legal and regulated industry. I'm not a smoker, and I've never smoked, and I think the goal of most Ontarians is to stop smoking. Uh, but I know that as a, a former police officer, that it, there, if it's harder to get one thing, the black market is going to flourish. So you mm-hmm. can't just ignore the black market. Uh, and, uh, you know, as, as as the politicians make these hard decisions, stopping smoking is important. But one thing we would like them to do as well is spend some money not just on anti-smoking uh, public awareness campaigns. We'd really like to see some anti-contraband campaigns to to explain to people just what they're doing and who they're dealing with when they buy contraband tobacco. Uh, what do politicians say when you explain to them, and I'm sure they know, the Quebec example, uh, again, there it is right there. It's working in the next, you know, in the imaginary border across the province, across the river. Why is it not working here? They really don't say anything. Yeah, they just yeah. uh, they nod their heads and say that's, that's a coming. great idea, and uh, we'll certainly bring it forward. But it uh, never comes. Uh, nothing has come to fruition yet. I will give the government credit for creating a nine mine nine person OPP provincial task force to deal with uh, contraband. It's a start, but it's a pretty big province for nine officers to deal yeah. with uh, the contraband issue, and uh, some of the things they've done regulating tobacco and whatnot. But they need to do so much more, even regulating the material that are used to make cigarettes. One, maybe one thing to get the contraband brought in from the states and manu- the tobacco brought in, but it takes material, something called acetate toe, to make uh, the filters. And that's uh, that, that industry is unregulated. There's only a few companies that do it, but if you regulated that industry to get a trail of who they're selling it to and why they're making twice as much as they're legally you know, selling to legal companies, uh, if we make it harder to manufacture products and sell products that go into making cigarettes, we can make a dent too. It's another thing we ask the governments to do. Where are the schools on this? How can they help? The schools have been pretty silent. Um, I, I, we have tried to reach out to school boards and whatnot and uh, haven't had a lot of success. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know where the schools stand mm. on this. I do know that we did a uh, every year we've done tours. We've done a project where a, a company picks up cigarettes butts around high schools. Yeah. And uh, there's, you know, depending on where it is and the time of year and whatnot, 30 to 40 percent of those cigarettes are contraband. And I will tell you, uh, I teach at Humber College, and one of my students told me that the year before in high school, one of his classmates sold contraband out of his locker at school. Uh, Dad picked up a large shipment f- uh, from, uh, I guess, smoke shacks, and he sells them at work. Mom sells them at home, and like instead of having Tupperware parties, yeah. she has contraband parties, and the young uh, boy sells them out of his locker. And what kind of a 
message is that sending that young man that it's yeah. okay to be involved in this trade? Uh, with smoking declining, do you think the government thinks this is becoming less of an issue? Well, I mean, is it becoming less of an issue because smoking rates are going down? Smoking rates are going down. Uh, the contraband rates are pretty high. Uh, it's still, you know, uh, a lot of smoke going, smokes being sold by organized crime. And if it's going down, I don't think it's just, the organized crime isn't going to go down easily. Mm-hmm. They're going to continue to find their market. It's too lucrative for them, especially when they're selling drugs and guns and everything that goes along with it. So they're not going to stop their trade just because some people might stop smoking. And I think it's a long, long way before uh, the whole country decides we're not going to smoke anymore. Gary Grant has been with us, spokesperson for the National Coalition Against Contraband Tobacco. If people want to find out more, Gary, where can we go? Stopcontraband.ca. Stopcontraband.ca. Gary, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Nice to be in. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.